0: This podcast is brought to you by Wonder Capital. Are you an aspiring founder of a company? Are you looking for inspiration in your career? Listen to our latest podcast with Wonder, now available on the Interchange podcast feed. We talked with Wonder CTO Dave Reese about the framework he used to change his career path into solar, eventually co-founding a successful company, Again, listen to that episode on the Interchange podcast feed and check out Wonder's financing options for commercial and community solar projects at wondercapital.com/gtm. Support also comes from Dandelion Energy, the leading home geothermal company. Homeowners who make the switch to geothermal heating save on average $2,250 per year. See if your home qualifies today and see how Dandelion Energy is remaking geothermal energy. Visit dandelionenergy.com slash gtm. This week on What It Takes, Terry Jester has seen it all in her 40-year career in solar. As both an engineer and executive, she's learned that timing is everything in the energy business.
1: I, I think as I've gotten older, I understand kind of best when to strike, if it's something new or bring up a new idea or change something, a good idea cannot make it for bad timing, and a bad idea can go too far.
0: Welcome, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is What It Takes, an interview series produced by Powerhouse and Green Tech Media. In this series, we hear from founders and executives at the most influential clean energy companies, their backgrounds, their passions, their struggles, their deals, their management philosophies, their near-death experiences. In this episode, Powerhouse CEO Emily Kirsch sits down with Terry Jester, the chief executive of SoulPad, maker of a modular home solar storage system. And yeah, Terry knows a thing or two about timing. She started her career at Arco Solar in 1979, where she worked on module design, helping make products that could last for decades. She's since held operations or engineering positions at Shell, Siemens, Sunpower, Solar World, and Solaria, witnessing the initial evolution and eventual explosion of solar firsthand. Terry is now in the startup world, where she's trying to help Solpad carve out a niche in the market for home solar battery systems. So we're going to hear about how she's applying operations lessons from big corporations to a startup. This conversation was recorded live at the Women of Renewable Industries and Sustainable Energy Forum in Denver, Colorado. For more information on future events at Powerhouse's headquarters in Oakland, California, go to powerhouse.fund, F-U-N-D, or follow that little link in the episode notes. So, without further ado, here is Emily Kirsch with Terry Jester.
2: Terry, welcome to What It Takes. Thank you, Emily. I'm really happy to be here. Right. So, Terry, you grew up in uh, what you described as a huge family. I think there were nine of you. There were so eight of us. Eight, <laughs> of, eight of you. Eight of you. So tell us about um, tell us about your siblings. Um, I know your dad was an engineer building rockets. Your mom was a dancer. Uh, what influence did your family have on your character?
1: Well, I did grow up in a great, huge family, and I'm second. I have five brothers. I always think that had something to do with my desire to be in a man's world, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, my dad was an engineer at Rockwell up at Edwards Air Force Base area where they were developing all the rockets and sort of high-powered planes and things, high-speed pl- planes. So interesting uh, place to be in the 60s and 70s, early 70s. Um, so uh, that was a lot of fun, and it was a small town, so it was really easy to you know roam around and be pretty free. And, and I always liked math, always enjoyed math as a kid and uh, knew that I wanted to do something with that. So... Uh, growing up, that was uh, one of the pieces of who I knew who I that I knew who I was, yeah.
2: and loving math and science in middle school and high school. I, I imagine, especially at that time, you were one of the only girls in those classes. Is that true? And if so, what was that like? It's funny. I, I didn't really notice at the
1: beginning. It was when I went to college that I so many times I was the only woman in the class, and um, fortunately, we had. Uh, I had a math teacher. I originally started as a math major who pulled me aside as my sophomore year and said, e- either you got to go all the way and get a PhD and be in academia or you better switch to engineering so you can get a job because you're not going to get a job as a as an, uh, uh, single degree math major. So I ended up switching to engineering and I was really happy that I did. I ended up uh, looking at all the different uh, types of engineering and settled on mechanical. Um, and the school that I went to, Cal State Northridge, had a couple of female uh, professors who were quite progressive and started a women in science and engineering uh, club or sort of a society there on campus. So We always had a place to study, a lot of networking and support. Uh, even though you'd end up being the only woman in a class, you between classes and in the evenings and studying and such, you always had a network of folks you could rely on. Still friends to this day with a lot of them.
2: And you mentioned, so you went to Cal State Northridge, which is in the LA area, um, graduated with an engineering degree in 1979. And I know you worked all through college um, at Hughes Aircraft, building missiles and at IBM, building computers. What did you discover about yourself in college that shaped your career trajectory? Well,
1: I... uh I did take a solar energy course my senior year. Uh, A lot of it was focused on thermal, which uh, I was studying thermodynamics at the time. So that was a a good fit. And we had a very small section on PV, but I found it so intriguing that the sun could create electricity. Uh, I was working for Hughes and we were building missiles and I just thought that isn't even though it's so challenging and technically, you know, quite sophisticated, I didn't really want to do that with my life. So I quit with all the bravado a 20-year-old has, and realized I needed a job that night, you know, to <laughs> pay my rent the next month. Um, so I had a friend that was working for a small solar startup. Uh, Atlantic Richfield had just purchased uh, a company called Solar Technology, and he said, "I'll send you uh, send your resume in if you want." And they interviewed me literally the next day, and I was able to join them and work as an intern most of my senior year in college. So I thought at the time I would go get a real job after that, but spent 28 years at that firm. Uh, Changed hands a number of times, but uh, that was a really great part of sort of growing up as an engineer because it was the super early days of the solar business, but companies that had the wherewithal and uh, desire and strategy at the time to really push things forward.
2: What did ARCO have that others didn't have at the time as it relates to solar research and development?
1: Well, they had acquired this company whose history had, uh, the DNA of the company had been uh, Spectralab Uh, employees that split off, they had originally done space satellite cells and satellite modules, split off to do terrestrial solar. Uh, ARCO acquired them, so there was a deep knowledge of how solar cells worked, Uh, a lot of cost reduction and commercialization challenges to try and not use things that were $1,000 a watt, you know, as far as building um, uh, terrestrial flat plate modules. So, uh, in fact, my early boss was Charlie Gay, who's running the Department of Energy, uh, solar and en- uh, uh, solar energy technology program. So I worked for him for 12 years during that 28-year tenure and uh, talk about an advocate for women and a support uh, system to uh, take care of uh, all employees, uh, but really, really was looking out for female scientists and engineers.
2: One of the things that I love about you that I found online was uh, a stat that you were working in solar when solar was rarely if ever used on earth at least pv that it was pretty much just being used for satellites um so so it was it was such early days um what was it like working on solar at at a sort a startup within a larger company um, having now worked for startups after you
1: know almost 30 years with large firms uh, you never worried about money, and that was doesn't mean that capital was easy to come by, but I never worried about payroll. You know, now that I run smaller companies, you 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 part of your job is to make sure companies funded properly. Um so those worries, excuse me, <clears throat> were not present in big companies because obviously they have big balance sheets and and at the time Arco followed by Siemens and then followed by Shell, you know, those are huge companies, very successful firms. Um and they were looking at long-term Uh, adoption and growth of renewable energies uh, because they knew uh, all those companies actually have multi-decade business plans. You know, for me being in my early 20s, I thought, my goodness, how can anybody ever look that far out in the future? But they were all looking at where things might go over, you know, 20 to 50 years, actually. So that was their involvement at the time. I think it took those kinds of companies to support the kind of research and Uh, I like to say I was in the room when they made the decisions at Siemens to warrant modules for 25 years. And we had all of our uh, bathtub curves and failure rate analyses and all the data showing that they would last 30 to 40 years. These are modules. But in the end, uh, the CEO of the company at the time, he was a division head at Siemens, said, look, we're Siemens. We've been in business 100 years we have the balance sheet. I love all this engineering, he said. but the truth is this is a marketing. It's, it's important for the market to understand these can last. So we're going to take this step. And it was for me the first time I realized that the business part of solar really needed to take, you know, sort of the top tier, that uh, those companies did a wonderful job of helping support get, uh, getting the initial um, reliability work done, et cetera, et cetera. But to to really promote it and become something big, they realized that the commercial part of it was, I mean, that's obviously what they brought to the table.
2: So you mentioned Arco getting acquired first by Siemens and then moving on to Shell. Um, did things change post-acquisition? Each of those companies
1: has very different DNA. I'll say that. Um, oil companies, of course, have a certain uh, sort of explorer and... Uh, logistics mentality. Siemens was an electronics firm, mostly, although we reported into the nuclear energy division. So that was kind of an interesting uh, corporate uh, relationship that the sol- this little solar business, you know, reported to this huge nuclear division. Um, I will say this: after having worked for small companies and big companies, big companies do know how to treat people. You know, I, I'm very happy that I worked for big companies in the beginning because I think uh, the human resource and human uh, capital ideas that come forward in big companies, uh, little companies can learn about that. You know, they don't need all the capital that the big companies have to adopt the kind of personnel standards and things that I like to say in, in little companies and particularly in startups, I would say it's hand-to-hand combat every day. You know, <laughs> And uh, I think sometimes if you just can adapt some of the things that these big companies do well. I think it could it can go a lot faster and smoother.
2: As as far as that treatment, uh, I imagine you were still in many cases the only woman in the room. Um, was that similar to what it was like in college? Did you have the same kind of network of support that you did then at uh, for Siemens and then Shell? It's interesting. Um, the oil companies, I think, were very progressive
1: about diversity. Shell, I will say, and I, I had the Really fortunate. Um, uh, good luck to sit next to the CEO of Shell at a recent, in the last year, uh, uh, conference that I went to, and I told him I learned more from that company about uh, diversity and how to treat people than I could ever imagine. And and it's in hindsight that it, a lot of it has sunk in. Um, and he seemed shocked. <laughs> I said, No, really. You know, you you really worked hard on communication. You really worked hard on. Uh, making sure that people had chances, Um, and a woman that I worked with uh, very briefly there, she's the CFO of Shell worldwide now. I mean, they just have been super uh, thoughtful about diversity providing strength and and diversity of people, but diversity of opinion. So I'm not here to promote Shell. I'm just really here to say that I think (laughs) that some of the things that these big companies do, uh, you can learn from.
2: One of our very first, actually, our very first guest on What It Takes was Dick Swanson, the founder of SunPower. We also interviewed Dan Sugar, the former president of PowerLight that was acquired by SunPower. And so I know that while you were at, I think it was at Shell when you got the call from Dick Swanson at SunPower after the PowerLight acquisition, and Dick said, come come, join us at SunPower. And what did you say?
1: Uh, well, I ended up working for them. I really enjoyed that. I I knew Dick from the early days of uh, at Arco. And in fact, springs into my mind. I got to attend the, is it the Gossamer Albatross, the PV plane that flew around the world? Uh, oh, Solar Impulse? Uh, was or no, the, before, that, before that. It was yeah. Paul McCready's. It was probably not the one that made it all the way around the world. Think right. it made it yeah. to <laughs> Hawaii. Good. But I got to see it land at Edwards with Dick Swanson and Bill Yerkes. And uh, we were just marveling at, you know, like, wow, this is another thing these things could do. <laughs> you know? um, but I think at the time, the the industry was so small that it wasn't unusual that you knew these founders. I knew Dan uh, when he was at PowerLight, and I enjoyed that team, all of the SunPower and PowerLight team were so progressive and so enthusiastic. And so it was really a pleasure for me to go join them and work. uh, I was living in uh, Southern California and commuting up to Northern California. So um, that was probably the biggest challenge of that part of my
2: career. Mm. Tell us about the work you were doing at SunPower at the time.
1: Uh, At the time, I moved from, so most of the work I had done at Arco Siemens Shell was technical and then operations. I ran the operation in Camarillo uh, making ingots, wafers, cells, modules helped uh, when Solar World acquired that company, move it up to Portland, Oregon. Um, And I switched gears quite a bit. All during that time, though, I really kept my finger on the pulse of doing technical work because I I am an engineer. (laughs) So we had um, a number of Department of Energy projects on developing materials or developing efficiency methodologies. So I was always signing up to be the principal investigator, and I'd write the reports on the weekend or the evenings just so I could stay abreast of all the technical work that was going on. So SunPower hired me to uh, run this program called the Solar America Initiative. It was a $50 million, uh, eight subcontract uh, project to develop um, significant improvement in cost reduction in the solar value chain. So it was really interesting because I was working with a number of different companies and alternative methods of making modules and installations cheaper. So it was more of a project management role. And uh, so it was really quite interesting. Mm
2: -hmm. Um, And then I know you got another call from a DOE colleague who wanted to recruit you to be an entrepreneur in residence, uh, to which you said, I'm not an entrepreneur, I'm an (laughs) operations person. So how did you come to accept that that new role?
1: Well, I'd met through that work with the Department of Energy and doing this uh, principal investigation those years at Arco Siemens Shell and then onward at Sunpower. Uh, uh, Craig Cornelius, I don't know if many of you know him in the room, he went on to run a big part of NRG. Um, he called me and said uh, he was joining Hudson Clean Energy Partners. They'd raised a billion dollars for uh clean energy and renewables investment and would I come be an EIR for the company. And I didn't really know what that meant to be honest with you. But I all I did say what Emily said. I'm not an EIR. I'm an operations person. And you know, I really I, and then I think I said, and I don't swim with sharks because it was an investment group and they assured me they weren't sharks. <laughs> I've come to really appreciate what investment was, groups was do, that by true way,
0: or,
2: or no did it they is turn true.
1: Out to be <laughs> <But> <laughs> it was true. It was very uh, it was very true. So I um but I think I didn't know what it all meant. So I quickly, like, work, worked through and researched what an EIR did. And I thought, well, this is quite an opportunity. And uh, and then did that. And that was really my entree into smaller companies and understanding the capital cycle that makes small companies work. Um, I think Emily will, will ask me a question about founders. I'm not a founder. I'm a person that comes in and takes an idea and and works to commercialize it. That's what I love to do. And I did that a lot in the early days with sort of research out of the lab and putting it into the factory. Um, and I see that in uh, startups, that there's kind of a need for, let's make this business cycle as fast as we can. At uh, SoulPad I'm famous for saying, we're going to get off the doll, <laughs> we're going to stand our own two feet and uh, make our products and ship them and make our own money and reinvest in our own uh, growth. So um, I really love that part of business.
0: Coming up, Terry swims with the Sharks. Very nice Sharks, though. We'll hear about how jumping headfirst into finance changed her career in solar. First, are you trying to change your career? Well, we recently published an episode about that subject on our other podcast, The Interchange. It's with Wonder Capital... And it's with Dave Reese, the chief technology officer of Wonder, who, before co-founding the company, was hit with an existential challenge as a software developer.
2: I sort of had this quarter-life crisis moment where I was asking myself, what am I doing with my life? I'm working really hard solving these problems, and fundamentally I'm helping big brands spend money more effectively on Facebook, um, and nobody cares about that, including me.
0: We detail... How Dave made choices to change the direction of his life, designing a career, a product, and a startup team with intention. Listen to that episode produced with Wonder Capital on the Interchange feed. It's linked in the show notes, or you can find the Interchange anywhere you get your podcasts. We're also brought to you by Dandelion Energy, the leading home geothermal company. Just five feet below the surface of your home, the temperature of the earth is warm enough to provide heating in the winter. And Dandelion Energy uses cutting-edge geothermal technology to harness the earth's warm temperature to safely and reliably heat your home. Homeowners who make the switch to geothermal heating save on average $2,250 per year. Visit dandelionenergy.com to see if your home qualifies for geothermal heating.
2: And so you were actually, you were on the capital side, you were actually getting pitched, deciding what to invest in. How was it being on that side of the table? What did it make you, did it make you feel a certain way about startups either that you wanted to join them or you wanted to distance yourself from them? You know, for me, it was so fascinating, the whole cycle of
1: seed money. Uh, And about that time, I had been asked to be on a board of a small startup that I had, had had met a couple of the founders throughout the years. And I really started to understand both working at Hudson and uh, through that uh, board role that the capital cycles in these companies are what are their lifeblood, you know, that as you migrate through, you know, the small amount of money to get an idea formed and proven to the money that you need to take whatever that is, be it software or hardware or, you know, medicine to, something that you can actually sell, those cycles, I I think, are critical, you know, to how this this whole business can be successful. And I mean renewable energy because there's still so much left to do, right? And there's still so many good ideas and so many things to be finished. So uh, I came to really appreciate how important that work is. And after having joked about not swimming with sharks or not, you know, being capable of that listening to pitches and being able to understand whether the, or help uh, the investment firm understand whether the science worked, whether the scalability could work, you know, that was, it was actually really rewarding and um, not something I would have thought I would do actually.
2: And that experience led you to become CEO for the first time of a company called Solaria. Tell us about how that came to be. It was actually, um, Silicor. I,
1: sorry about that. I I probably told you the wrong thing. Um, so I joined a number of the different portfolio companies for periods of time. One thing you do realize, uh, in at least in that period of time, that it's a rocky road, right? I mean, as, as scale-up takes place, some sometimes founders make it, sometimes they don't. And so there were a couple of times where I went in and sort of just stabilized a company while they hired new uh, executives. Uh, and then I ended up uh, being COO of Silicor Materials, which is a – I'd done all of the value chain from ingots to – modules and uh, installs, but I'd never done the very front end of making silicon and so it was a really industrial process. We were out raising money for a large plant. Um, We had a small uh, facility in Toronto, Canada and a cell making facility in Sunnyvale, California. So I was COO and I ended up moving to Toronto for a while. and we realized that the silicon part of that business was really the strategic value. And we ended up uh, running the Toronto plant and selling the equipment in California uh, to focus on silicon. And that company today is building a plant in China. I'm still on the board of that company. And it's just a pleasure to see it come to fruition. But that was my, I was COO to begin with. And then I moved into the CEO role. And that was my first time sort of running the show, if you will. What was
2: it like running the show?
1: It it in some ways it was a natural migration because it's an operational company it's making something you know um, in some ways it was oh my god what have I gotten into because I was always uh, picking up skills on the financial side throughout the years because cost and delivery and cash cycles you know in operations all those things are important to make sure uh, you optimize your profit um, and so that of course. I understood, but balance sheets and fundraising and all those things were not things that I had done myself. And so the CFO of that company, um, a wonderful friend still, we, we were going all around the world raising money. And I put 2 million, mi- two million miles on with United during that period of time. It was wow. crazy. Fortunately, my kids were in college and out of college. So it was an easy time to be doing that. You know, it's not always easy in periods of time of your life to be gone uh forty five of sixty days, but um we were looking originally at building that plant in Iceland, so I spent oh gosh, the better part of three years in Iceland uh three weeks out of the month and then we were fundraising in Europe a lot and China, so those were places that I was kind of hopping back i I've ended up in the middle East uh fundraising, that was quite quite an adventure wearing uh the appropriate clothing and being respectful of course of of uh minding the the customs there so. It was another one of those moments where you go, "Wow, you don't know where your career's going to (laughs) go. You don't have any idea." Standing there in that, it's beautiful Abaya, but thinking that isn't something I would have thought there'd be a picture of me standing by a building in Riyadh. You know, Um, so really interesting parts of being uh, sort of the person in charge that I had never quite understood. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, I had a really good CFO by my side that mm-hmm. we we could really help each other out.
2: Mm-hmm. And you mentioned at that point, your kids were already in college. I know you have two daughters, both of whom are in the STEM field. At what point uh, in in the career that we just covered, did you have them and if and how much of an impact did that have on your choices and trajectory in your career? I,
1: I think this is one of the most difficult things women face. I mean, we talk a lot about it, but it is it's a very difficult period of time in life, I think, when you're uh, working and, and trying to be everything to everybody. Um, so I had my kids when I was 32 and 35, and I was running uh, operations in Camarillo uh, for, let's see, that was under the Siemens days. And um, they, of course, being a big company, I had nice maternity leave for that period of time. I took three months off with each child. Um, but when you get back, you're you're just sort of trying to keep it all together, you know, and Make sure that you get home in time to help them and make sure that they're well cared for. And I just remember thinking uh, if ever I was going to break, I felt like that was when I was going to break. That being said, I think that it's such a natural part of if you decide to have children, it's such a natural part of uh, of, of that decision. But I had an incredibly supportive husband and incredibly supportive uh sharing of responsibility but in the end i i wish i could say it differently but i you know i was a primary parent when you're nursing of course that's part of it when you're doing uh, certain things with with babies it feels like natural to have the mother do it i i wish i could say it some other way but i think it's one of the most difficult periods of time in a a working woman's life
2: if she decides to have children mm-hmm. yeah. and you mentioned feeling close to that breaking point what prevented you from breaking, or was there a break?
1: Well, I was fortunate to have a lot of family members around me. So I had uh, brothers and sisters that were very helpful. My mom helped me babysit quite a bit, found good daycare that was essential, that you feel comfortable when you leave your children to somebody else's care. And thank goodness. There are people that are good that are doing that. Thank goodness that helps the world go around, right? And and I'm only speaking from my own personal experience, but I think that those were the things that helped kind of make me rebalance and say, I think I can do this. (laughs) I don't need to step out for long periods of time because I think that's the alternative. And and that's a good alternative, too. Um, Fortunately, again, with this network that I was able to create, I was able to sort of stick with it.
2: Great. And then at what point were you recruited to join Soulpad? What did you know of the company? How did they how did they come to to find you?
1: Well, I ended up um going to work for Solaria, which was a great experience as COO. They do a lot of their manufacturing overseas, so uh, I was working with the factories that they had contracted with. And in before I took that job, I had interviewed for a job at uh I'd gotten contacted by a recruiter to look at Soulpad. Um It wasn't the right time for me to join that company. Uh, Then later, about a year later, I got contacted by the chairman of the board and a primary investor, and he asked me if I would join the board. Uh, He said, we we hadn't forgotten you. We'd really like you to be part of the company in some way. Um, And the more we talked, and I ended up, this was sort of an odd uh, sort of natural transition. I ended up meeting the current CEO and we were spending this, he was not the founder, by the way. Um, he had done a lot of work with Solar City, and he was a CFO. Uh, we ended up having lunches together and he said, you know, Terry, this is an operational company. This was so unusual. He said, the board would like you to take over as CEO. I'm going to go on the board if you're okay with that. <laughs> I said, Well, that's not where this started, but you know, <laughs> I guess if that's where this is leading. And I really liked the product, um, Solpad is uh, has an electric we would call it an appliance but it's a converter and storage system uh, a one to many PV panel to storage system and uh, we're launching in Puerto Rico and one of the reasons I I didn't mention when I first started in solar is altruistically I really felt like it was something that could change the world and then I spent all these years on the commercialization you know and realizing it had to make money got to make these things be cost effective and perform well and and make uh, systems easy to install et cetera et cetera Um, and I thought, gosh, you know, maybe I'll get to spend the rest, last part of my career working on altruistic It's a commercial entity, commercial product, but doing something good for Puerto Rico would be really wonderful. So we have $60 million worth of orders in Puerto Rico that we're going to start fulfilling this summer. And, uh, that Island is just amazing. And, uh, I was there in December, the, uh, construction and the buildings are all fairly well healed. You wouldn't think that there had been a devastating hurricane there recently, but you can see the weakness. You can see the weakness in the power lines. You can see that everybody did the best they could to prop it up, but it it definitely needs to be revamped. And of course, the DOE and PREPA themselves have been working on the revamp program. So uh, I'm, I'm really excited about being able to spend some time helping customers and homeowners and folks in Puerto Rico uh, get strong backup power to uh, an improved grid.
2: Can you talk a little bit more about the, the product itself and uh, who the customer is?
1: Yeah. Uh, it's a inverter and battery storage system that can work from, you can go as few as one panel, but it doesn't make a lot of sense to do that. Two to four, maybe can push that a little bit further. Residential uh, storage inverter and storage system, more efficient than anything out in the market. That's a bit of a marketing uh, pitch there, but um, So, we're getting order. We're actually in the process of ordering production parts now and gearing up with our manufacturing partner to uh, start shipping this summer. And Puerto Rico uh, has been a natural fit for us because the desire and the need is there. So, they've been paying attention to this company for the last 18 months, two years, and have placed these orders and then just revamped them about a week ago to make sure we understood they want to be first in line to. Uh, access to the product, so it's a highly efficient converter and storage system that is uh, simple to install. We call it plug and play, but it's everything that you need, uh, and then you connect to the to the grid at the end. Super simple.
2: So I was at the product launch for SoulPad, which was at this very um, swanky place in San Francisco called The Battery. It's this exclusive social club. And SoulPad rented out the penthouse, the roof deck, and had this, what I would, and I think many would describe as a very over-the-top launch party. There was a person in an astronaut suit who walked out with one of the SoulPads. And so a lot of investors who were there were like, what is this? Like, this this is a lot. And so I'm curious, what's your sense of of the product launch. Um, you know, I think a lot of people had questions about the product that weren't necessarily answered at that time. What's been the evolution since then? I think that was at least a year and I think a half it's ago, at least that long. Cause I've been with the company about a year. Um, so I think
1: I was telling Emily this before the, the interview that I think a lot of times the, well, thank goodness there's founders because their brilliance and enthusiasm, I think, strike a spark that, that, that can glow and burn. Right. Um, I think a lot of times, so that enthusiasm precedes or exceeds maybe where you are in the business cycle. Um, So that product that was launched as a mobile unit, it's a beautiful product. Um, In the end, it's not what the company decided to do. So we're doing, you know, rooftop residential and small scale commercial uh, energy storage and backup power for, backup power, time of use shifting, all of the things that storage can do, right? Um, so I think it's a case, I'm, I, I, I can't speak because I wasn't there about all the detail, but I think it's a case of where sort of enthusiasm and uh, desire preceded uh, kind of where you were in the business cycle. Is that a fair
2: comment, very do you fair. think? No, very fair, very pragmatic. Um, throughout all of these stages of your career, were there moments, not necessarily when you thought the companies would fail per se, although that that could have crossed your mind. Are there moments where you thought you yourself would fail? You know, I think
1: um I think all of you in this room would agree you have to have a certain amount of perseverance. And I have to say, I never crossed my mind. i the time I talk about breaking with like feeling with my, Children when they were babies, I think it was more sort of emotional stress of not being able to do everything to whatever level we all have in our minds that we should be able to do these things. Um, but I think that maybe I, I'm just not bright enough to know that you can fail. I don't know. I I think that, or maybe it's that I can go home at the end of the day and say, "Wow, I've given that everything I've got," and if it makes it, I'm so happy. And if it doesn't, man, I did everything I could, you know and i don't know it's been easy in the solar business to feel that way because there's so much to do right <laughs> there's been no charted course or no you know prescriptive way that this needs to happen so uh talk about challenging and fun and learning and um it's been a it's been a wonderful place to
2: be i'll say that um what were your most challenging moments
1: i think uh there've been a couple um I think early on when you launch something and you put like for a 25-year warranty and you have no idea whether that's – I mean you have some science that says it's going to make it but nothing had been out there even five years, you know. I did lose some sleep over that. <laughs> um, on a personal level, the other thing I – being an operations person, um, the big companies really know how to deal with safety. Some of the smaller companies, I've had some situations where – We've done things that were less than safe and I had to respond to that, you know, and you have to, you really have to take a strong line again in making things, right? Usually they're not hazard free. There's some kind of thing you have to deal with. And I think you always have to remember people come first. I mean, it's in, in how you treat them obviously, but safety wise, I think there've been a couple moments in my
2: career. I think, oh boy, that was a close call. And Did anyone ever get hurt?
1: Uh, There was an injury in in, uh, Toronto. That's why I went up there. I remember my boss came in one day and said, you got to get up to Toronto and figure out what's going on. (laughs) And that's when I took that under my wing and went up and lived there. And really we did a safety kind of stand down from top to bottom to figure out the the employee ended up being okay, gratefully, but it could have gone the other way. And I think it was super humbling for me to realize that in our haste to do things, you know, you have to be conscious of, 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 uh, of of those risks. It's one of the things I think SunPower does really well. I uh, uh, really commendable or really great kudos to both Tom and Dick and, and Bill Mulligan there. who really set things in motion to be super conscious of safety and again I think the big companies do it very well. They worry a lot about, they they put in place the right kinds of programs that make people think about it.
2: What lessons have taken the longest to learn?
1: Gosh, you know, I, I, I think the hardest lesson for me has been, uh, I speak my mind, uh, but I usually kind of being an engineer, gather all the data first. I think the hardest lesson for me is timing. Like I, I think as I've gotten older, I understand kind of best when to strike if it's something new or bring up a new idea or change something. Um, and I think as I'm still learning every day, you know, a good idea cannot make it for bad timing and a bad idea can go too far if the timing isn't, you know, assessed properly. And so I think for me, that's one of the lessons. I also think, you know, confidence is always a struggle uh, when you're, uh, you know, a minority, I think. And, And I think while I've always felt confident, I think sometimes you have to force yourself to get in the mix. I think, you know, Sheryl Sandberg talks about leaning in I think that isn't a natural feeling as she describes in the book. I think
2: you have to push yourself to step in. What did you teach your daughters about entrepreneurship and leadership in technology?
1: Well, I I think they learned from a lot of different places. Um they learned from their dad. He was he's an engineer. They learned from playing sports. Uh, my oldest was a semi-pro surfer. We I raised them in Carpinteria and so they grew up in the water. And so, you know, she learned to compete. She learned to compete head head on head with people. Um, My youngest is also an athlete. She's a a kickboxer. I think they learn a lot from sports about confidence and and they learned a lot about giving back. I don't know that I taught that to them, but they both feel very strongly about giving something back. I was telling Emily, my youngest, got an engineering degree and then taught uh, robotics and uh, math and machine shop at an all-girls school because she really wanted that population that she was teaching to see that there's plenty of opportunity out there. And she said, no one will ever hire me after this now. And she was sure she would never get a job in a more traditional engineering field. Uh, and I said, of course, know you can communicate. And I, so I really felt like I was so so I was so much in admiration that she felt strongly to go do this, even at the risk of what she perceived as never being hired. She got hired two days later (laughs) in a a company, a startup company in Santa Barbara. But I I think that um, whatever they saw, maybe partly uh, they've been very environmentally conscious. My oldest, who still surfs every day if she can, um, she has a baby, so she's got her own work life balance challenge. I know she's a healthier mental person when she's (laughs) been in the water. Um, I think that gives her a unique perspective on the environment, having seen over her twenty-seven years of life, um, and I don't know, fifteen of that surfing or seventeen of that surfing, seeing what changes have taken place in the ocean, she'll talk to me about it and what mm-hmm. she sees out there. And mm-hmm. you know, so I think she's got firsthand sort of desire to help uh preserve the environment.
2: Mm-hmm. Um Do you think being a woman has had an impact on how you lead? I do because I think, um, well, as I mentioned, I grew up
1: with five brothers, so I'm not a very, uh, you can't, you can't intimidate me very easily, Mm -hmm. but I do think that there are, um, ways that I, uh, being, being who I am look at, uh, usually a little bit softer side of things before I act particularly in personnel situations, I think for me, I I really try to walk in their shoes and understand, unless it's really an egregious thing, uh, I try to step back and give myself a day to think about whatever the problem is to, uh, if it's a very serious situation, usually these are personnel things or maybe something having to do with safety, as I mentioned, to just try to compose a thoughtful course can change and I always say, if I make a mistake, back up and admit your mistake and go forward. Um, but I think that at least for me, I I think there's a softer side of managing that women bring. Um, it still is direct and should be direct, but I think
2: there's just these sort of softer edges I think that we can bring. Great. Where do you think SoulPad and our industry will be in five years? Gosh. Um, you, you look at every statistic
1: it's growing growing double digits, right? And isn't it nice to be an industry that has growth projections like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's going to continue to be uh, one of the largest growth sectors in, in, in the world of business, right? But I do think that some of the challenges that, in fact, I sat in on the energy uh, trading and policy shifting discussion, all of that is so foreign to me and so hard. You know, it just seems like making sure that keeps up with what we're doing uh, in the implementation and development side, uh, we need to make sure we support that well, because uh, I think those are are more difficult to get to change rapidly. Mm
2: -hmm. Great. We're going to move into our high voltage round. So these are quick questions, quick answers. First question is, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? I think I would be a dolphin, actually. Because I the I last would also be a
1: dolphin. twenty years I've grown up by I've been in the by the water a couple blocks from the water and uh, they are beautiful creatures and they seem like they're always having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. What inspires you? Being here inspires me. I got to tell you, looking at at how many wonderfully talented and committed women there are here inspires me. I um, gosh, just sort of taking a step back and thinking about the fact that. We can change the way things are done. You know, when you look at these last X amount of years, there has been so much change in this energy uh, arena. That's what I have, you know, we all work in, but it can happen. You don't know when you start. I mean, I, there were lots of times we'd look at each other and say, is this solar thing going to be anything? We we were still going to work on it regardless. Mm-hmm. But, you know, is this really ever going to be anything for so many years? And and so happy that
2: it has, right? right. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be?
1: Uh, I've often thought about, I I could have been a doctor, you know, um, only because I, I think that's also, at least for me, would have been an altruistic kind of a career, but, um, but I don't know that I could, could, I don't know that I could have the discipline to, to train like they train (laughs) what they do. Um.
2: But yeah, that would probably be the backup thing. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success?
1: I had such a wonderful and strong mother. I can't tell you. Actually, you can hear me. My voice break a little bit. She um, was a, a successful dancer before she had eight children, and just you know, really imparted in each of us. Uh, we could do anything we wanted. I don't know how she did that, but every single one of us has. Uh, knowledge that we could do anything or be anything we wanted. So she, she was an amazing person. That's beautiful. When have you failed? Oh gosh. Well, I, you know, you let people down. I don't, I don't think it's every day, but you know, I, you know when it happens Mm -hmm. because you think, Oh my God, really? Mm -hmm. Um, so I'd say, every week I must have some kind of failure because there are feelings like that. We go, Oh boy, I didn't, I didn't do that. Right. Or I didn't, um, fortunately it hasn't been anything that's created a huge problem. <laughs> um, but
2: yeah. What's the hardest thing you've dealt with?
1: I think, uh, because I, I come from such a, you know, a communicative communicative background, uh, I think letting people go at work has been one of the biggest pains for me is I feel like that is a failure. When you ask about failure, it's a failure on my part that either couldn't make it work or hired the wrong person or any number of things. I think that rests, I think always I feel squarely on me that, you know, if you can't make that work, it's, it's a very painful event still for me.
2: What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe?
1: Um, I used to think that good ideas would always make it, and I don't think that anymore, actually. I think given the experience now in kind of the financial sectors and the way business and finance have to come together, sometimes good ideas don't make it, which is unfortunate. And sometimes bad ideas, as I said before, go too far. And so I I think that's one of the things I've really learned. When are you your best self? I think when I'm... uh after i've been with people that i love and i'm doing good work and i have those rare moments where i feel like i've got work life balance <laughs> which is um very satisfying when they happen so mm-hmm. capture them and feel good about them when they happen mm-hmm.
2: what is your worst trait
1: uh i say yes too much yeah i i don't i don't do well with no i can't do that you know or no i i shouldn't do that or no i don't have time for that
2: <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so if there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? Wow. I would say my daughters, actually.
1: I, it's funny because I think uh, they're old enough that they know who I am and what I do. Um, but to have them know that uh, that I'm sitting here with all these amazing women, I think would inspire them. Yeah. What are their names? Uh, Rachel and Erin.
2: Shout out to Rachel and Aaron. (laughs)
1: Uh,
2: What is your best quality? Oh, I've heard it's generosity, but
1: I think it's sincerity. You know, I really do try to be present and, and if it's good news or bad news or whatever, just be authentic and sincere about it.
2: Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because. Well, I can say being a leader, I think, uh,
1: Bad leadership, bad timing, those two things. Success is success is for a company, I think obviously, profitability and stability and happy employees. Uh, I think personally, it's when you feel like you've accomplished something and that you and that accomplishment hopefully does something good for the world. I think that's a very satisfying feeling. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have. Ooh. I might have gone on and gotten an advanced degree. I was working on my master's. I don't think about this often, but uh, I was working so hard, I, I let that go. And I think, don't know that my career would have been much different. But maybe that's what I'll do in retirement: Just go get my <laughs> master's degree. I don't know.
2: What would you get your master's degree in? Um, probably engineering. <laughs> <laughs> If the new, if the world knew me for one thing, it would be? Well, I hope they would say she made a difference in some way. I'm most proud of?
1: Uh, of being in this industry. I, I'm really proud of
2: that, and I've uh, spoken certainly about my kids. I'm really proud of them. Last question. To build a successful startup, what it takes is? I think it takes
1: perseverance. I think it takes the right team. I think it takes... Uh, the right idea. Again, thankfully, founders are so creative and give the wonderful spark and and glow, I like to say, to whatever the idea is. Um, And I think it takes money and it takes time.
2: Please give a big round of applause for Terry Jester. Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: And that is the end of the interview with Terry Jester. Thanks to Terry. Thanks to Emily Kirsch. Thanks to Powerhouse for their continued partnership on this series. We have a ton of What It Takes interviews there for you. We'll we'll link to them in our show notes, or you can go to greentechmedia.com to see all of them. And uh, go to powerhouse.fund, F-U-N-D, powerhouse.fund, for more information on future events, to read about the companies that the people on this series have built, Subscribe to Green Tech Media's newsletters, greentechmedia.com slash newsletters. That'll keep you up to date with the results of all this entrepreneurial activity we discuss on this series. And help us out by giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Send us a message or a tweet on Twitter for any suggestions on people to interview for the series or topics to cover on The Energy Gang. The Gang is back next week. We'll catch you then. Thanks for listening.